Our Father, we are grateful for your word, and we thank you for the insight um, tonight into the production of that part of it, which is so glorious, uh, a consummation of all of redemptive history, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to understand something of you, our triune God's purpose in uh, that word being produced and to hear these especially poignant moments as Jesus prayed for his apostles. And we pray that we would find encouragement and strength in this portion of our study, and we ask it for Christ's glory and for the good of his church. Amen. Well, chapter 12, we're on the home stretch, the, far, the Father's gift. We're on John 16, 6 through 9. Let me uh, begin our time together by reading the text. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may become one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in them, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the, wor- and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Well, you'll recall the framework here that uh, Dr. Ferguson sees that this text follows something of the pattern of the high priestly prayer on the Day of Atonement. The priest prays first for himself and his ministry, for those who co-minister with him, and then finally for the people. And that clearly, that tripartite uh, structure is clearly followed by Jesus. We heard last week his prayer for himself, and now we hear this week his prayer for those who co-minister with them. Dr. Ferguson introduces this section by uh, imagining that at this point the disciples must be um, 
very curious as to what's going to happen to them. Uh, and he notes in particular that this, this prayer is probably markedly different from anything they've ever heard Jesus pray if uh, the examples we have in the Gospels are characteristic. He notes that there's a great simplicity that attaches itself to Jesus' prayers generally, but that this prayer has a depth to it, uh, a uh, challenge to it, um, that uh, was probably uh, very challenging to them. And um, the must have been quite provocative for them to listen in on. Uh, This is the longest section of the prayer. As Dr. Ferguson notes, uh, clearly Jesus has a great concern for these men. Um, Although, he he notes, that uh, the prayer begins at verse 6, but he doesn't actually intercede for them until halfway through verse 11. So the whole first part of the prayer is his description of them. Uh, And uh, perhaps that might seem curious, but the point is the disciples are a gift from his father. And he is um, expressing his gratitude for them. And in that, um, he uh, follows the pattern that Dr. Ferguson imagines a young man might have, when he was in love, he might pray for his girlfriend and uh, he would just naturally spend part of the time speaking to the Lord of how appreciative he was of her and uh, before he prayed on her behalf. Uh, the young man obviously doesn't think God needs to be told any of that. God knows better her qualities than the man himself. But the point is that when you open your heart up to God in that way, um, there is a, just a deep instinct of love that wants to describe why and how you care. And that seems to be uh, what Jesus um, is doing here. He, he doesn't refer to his uh, disciples or the apostles generally by those terms, but rather the term he picks is the, the for phrase, uh, those whom the Father has given him. Um, he, he loves these disciples. It isn't uh, a naive love. He doesn't uh, hide his eyes from their faults. But the point is, it, it's not so much uh, their own intrinsic worth, but the fact that they are a gift from the Father that provokes his love and devotion for them. Um, and the calling that he has to be their savior. The um, it, this salvation, of course, is triune. The Father elects, the Son sacrifices, and the Holy Spirit then applies all of the benefits of salvation to them. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned all of this from eternity. But now um, we see the fruition of that plan and hear Jesus describing uh, it all in this beautiful, intense prayer, um, and their own self-consciousness to realize that they were deeply loved by the Savior, uh, and principally because God's electing love had been upon them to draw them to Jesus. Um, and uh, the 
therefore they were of eternal value. Um, so we, you remember Dr. Ferguson had speculated a little bit about the sensibility of John, uh, referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, but here he urges that in fact, uh, this prayer reveals that they were all disciples whom Jesus loved. Well, that's the introduction to this section. And we come to the uh, prayer itself um, in w- with respect to um, the the two principal themes that Dr. Ferguson sees here. This is on page 202 under the title Chains of Grace. Uh, there, um, he sees links that bind the Father and the Son, the Son to the Father, and the disciples to the Father and Son articulated. And he thinks of two separate strands or chains. The first he calls the uh, link, the, the chain of glory. Uh, the Father's uh, uh, one of infinite glory. The uh, Son is glorified by the Father. The, father's, the Son glorifies the Father. And uh, the Son is glorified in the disciples. Um, and then a second chain the chain of the word, uh, that this is part of the great ministry the apostles will have, the what, he, what Ferguson calls the spirit-enabled function that get, uh, to give the church what we would call the New Testament. The record of Jesus' own teaching, the interpretation of that teaching, uh, stirred by the spirit that they would remember and understand after the resurrection, And then finally, the significance of Jesus for the future and the things having to do with his return and the uh, final judgment and the consummation of all things. And um, thus, um, the prayer is concerned not only with glory, but in fact, with this context that the words were given by the Father to the Son, words the Son has given the apostles, words the apostles have received and kept. And um, thus, the, um, he prays that they would, those words would be sanctified to them. And you remember, his sensibility here is not of uh, gradual sanctification, improvement over time, but it's the other sense of that word, it's, as it's used in the New Testament. That is a once-for-all consecration of something uh, to God. And on page 204, then, he shows this very interesting parallel between glory in those petitions and uh, uh, expressions and, and the word. And it's interestingly laid out on the page. Glory belongs to the Father. The words belong to the Father. Uh, glory is given to the Son. The word was given to the Son. Glory was given to the, by the Son to the apostles, and the word was given by the Son to the apostles. And the word was given, or excuse me, and glory is seen through the apostles' ministry by all disciples. And the word was given through the apostles to all disciples. A very interesting structure. And in fact, shows that uh, glory, that is the manifestation of God's excellence, generally speaking, and the word, which is the manifestation of the excellence of God's 
wisdom and plan for salvation are very, very tightly related um, in the New Testament sensibility. Um, the, um, and it, it helps us to see why this prayer has an important role in helping us to grasp and submit to the authority of the New Testament. Uh, that, that, that parallel relationship between the glory of the Father and the word of the Father brought all the way down through the ministry of the disciples, glory through the ministry of the disciples to all, and the word through the ministry of disciples to all, should lead us to see that this uh, word that uh, is the deposit of their ministry is of uh, just immeasurable importance in the history of redemption and in the history of the lives of um, God's people. On page 204, Dr. Ferguson notes that when we talk about the authority of the New Testament, we often go to texts that abstractly and particularly lay that out, like 2 Timothy 3.16 and following. But what Jesus is saying in this prayer is in some ways more fundamental even than that. Um, And uh, so we want to see this all in relationship to the trust that we can put in that apostolic word. That through these spirit-breathed, spirit-illuminated, spirit-applied scriptures, we are kept, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. It's when we read them, in this wonderful text from Corinthians, it's when we read them with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that we're transformed into the same things from one degree of glory to another. That's what the New Testament is, and that's what an encounter with the New Testament ought to bring about in us, um, being transformed by those truths from one degree of glory to another. Uh, A wonderfully integrated conception of all of this, and uh, on 205, Dr. Ferguson says that this is what the New Testament is for, (laughs) and so we are ought to immerse ourselves in this word, that we would emerge reflecting a little more clearly and fully the glory of the Lord. Well, let me stop there and see if you uh, have, this was maybe a little bit abstract, um, but, um, and maybe you've never thought in this way before, but I thought it was quite provocative and powerful uh, to see the relationship between the two. And then in relationship to the force, the authority, the power of the New Testament in our lives. Questions, comments, reflections on any of this? Jesus loves the disciples as they are, warts and all, that um, he he knows what we will be. And he says he's that he's not going to leave them in that condition. Yes, right. And I think as an application, as we go through this life, to think of our fellow believers, um, those we know, 
and love and those are, that are close to us that um, to keep that in mind ourselves and apply it to others as we become impatient um, and frustrated or whatever um, because we do see our warts and all. <laughs> so I thought you were going to say that that helps you to see that the word is a powerful wart remover. <laughs> we pray that it will be a powerful wart remover, don't we? <laughs> In ourselves and others. <laughs> but um, I, I just find off, it's so easy to just think uh, we or others are just going to remain the way Right, sure. This a promise that that's not true. Yeah, I, I mean that Corinthian passage is so beautiful that when we think of our encounter with the Word, we think of the power of the Word through the work of the Holy Spirit to make us glorious beings. That is, beings that show forth the excellence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I mean that is just a wonderful incentive. Uh, to want to he, read the word, to hear it uh, preached, to talk about the word with others, um, knowing that that is the function that it has, and that in fact it will finally perfectly accomplish all of that when Christ returns. Any other thoughts or reflections on that portion of the Dave, I'm going to um, admit that I did not finish the chapter this time, so it may be that somewhere um, he did deal with this. Um, but it, tell me if I'm totally off base. Um, the, the discussion of the disciples being love gifts from the Father to the Son in a way seems like it it's it's a, related to limited atonement um, in in a sort of interesting way that the 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 Armenian idea that Christ sort of died for everyone and that there's it's up to us to, to choose is makes no sense in this context where believers are, are the gifts from the Father to the Son. Is that He doesn't he doesn't explore that, but that is manifestly an implication of what's being said here, and it and it could be something that he took up. Um, I I I think he had these themes in mind uh, because they're often not the themes that are brought out of the high priestly prayer and he thought they were important to highlight. Um, but yes, you're you're certainly right that, um, that this prayer shows that it's not a, a indiscriminate love, but rather it's a particular love, a love that particularly accomplishes its purpose uh, with respect to everyone that that love is set upon, and um, that particularity is the beauty and power of the gospel. Mm, thanks. All right, well, let's um, press on to um, page 205. Um,
preservation and sanctification. Um, the uh, Jesus is leaving. He wants his uh, disciples to be cared for. Um, the uh, and so he prays that um, that, that uh, they would be kept and they would be sanctified, and that's what. Uh, preservation has to do with the keeping and sanctification, uh, the s- s- setting them apart. And the two ideas are very closely related. Um, so uh, the point is they have an enormous jur- journey in front of them, uh, much that could undo them and ruin the uh, work that they're to do. Um Jesus, while he was with them, had been their keeper and guard. Uh, They knew it from certain instances, but they probably, said Dr. Ferguson, uh, they probably didn't understand how comprehensively that all of their this worldly good was precisely in Christ's hands and that he was watching over them and preserving them and keeping them from harm. Um, uh, But now uh, he's going to be sending them out on their own, as it were, at least from the look of things. And so um, Dr. Ferguson, paraphrasing, has Jesus say, Father, keep them and keep them united so that their fellowship will be a powerful testimony to the gospel and uh, to others, uh, and, and others will come to believe in me. This is on page 206, the first full paragraph, the closing lines. And I thought here it might be worth pausing for a moment to reflect on this part of Jesus's prayer uh, because there's really two distinct ideas here with respect to the keeping that Dr. Ferguson identifies in the sentence but doesn't elaborate on in this section. And that is to keep them, meaning preserve them, their lives and so on, but then to keep them united so that their fellowship will be a powerful testimony to the gospel. And I thought it would be good to pause and to reflect on how our Lord's Prayer in this respect was answered. Jesus prayed for their preservation in the mission, physically and spiritually. Uh, Keep them in your name. Um, So they remain in a hostile world, but they are not to face death until their mission is accomplished. Each one of them has a critical part of that mission. And in fact, humanly speaking, um, of course, they had no power, this worldly power, And should either those representing uh, the Sanhedrin or those representing the Roman government, it had been the easiest thing in the world to simply round them up and kill them all. And the thing had been over with. No problem at all with respect to this crucified Messiah. And yet, in fact, uh, that never came to pass. Uh, And Jesus' prayer clearly is the one of the means that is instrumental to that remarkable, almost miraculous preservation 
of their lives. And I, sometimes I don't think we realize how profound that threat must have been and how many uh, revolutionary parties like this had been perished and crushed before Rome uh, or before uh, uh, Herod's puppet government throughout this period. And yet, miraculously, they survived. And, and you think of, you know, the loss of just a few could have been a catastrophe. Uh, I, you know, that wonderful um, saying, for want of a nail, the horse was lost, for want of the shoe, the Excuse me, for one of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of the shoe, the horse was lost. For one of the horse, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the battle was lost. For the want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a nail. I, I, I think that helps us to have an insight as to what this tiny little beginning, it could have been so easily snuffed out and it would have been world-changing in the implications of it. And yet, uh, uh, Jesus' uh, Father preserves them and watches over them. And this surely is Paul's self-consciousness at the end of his life. Um, In 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, the time of my departure has come. Not that I'm going to be killed promiscuously at the hands of some miscreant. But I, I have a departure time. My, my train's getting ready to leave, and I know that. This is all in the Father's hands. And he can reflect then on the Lord's preserving love. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He knew that he had accomplished what God had given him to do and that he was going to be called home. That's one thing it seems to me worth marveling at, how that prayer for their good was preserved. And then the second is that we need to realize that only the power of God through the Spirit could sustain and preserve them in what lay ahead as a united witness as a united witness. These are very different men. And yet, from the time of the resurrection, they all speak with one voice. The petition, keep them in your name. It could mean, uh, be read, uh, keep them by the power of your name. So, for example, Psalm 54, 1. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. But that sentence could also be read in the locative. That is, keep them in loyalty to you or in full allegiance to you. And I think that's uh, the better reading for this context. The name which was given to Jesus, it's the word, the truth, And Jesus is praying, keep them united in loyalty to that great word. Uh, D.A. Carson comments, in short, Jesus prays that God will keep his followers in firm fidelity to the revelation Jesus himself had mediated to them. You see, it would have been disastrous if Jesus had faithfully given the word. 
The apostles faithfully received it, but rather than faithfully conveying it with one voice, they begin to differ among themselves and uh, scatter. Um, The fact that they did not do so, the fact that this goal was accomplished, that they were preserved in the truth, in the same way the Son was one with the Father, loyal to the mission given to them, is virtually a proof of the divinity of the apostolic witness and its uh, um, divine authority. How often has it been otherwise? Think for a minute just for the history of political secessions. How often when you've moved from one powerful governor that his successors divide among themselves, civil wars follow, countries are divided, uh, disaster. I thought about this. You know, John Hinckley was just released uh, from captivity. Uh, Hinckley, in 1981, had shot uh, President Reagan. Um, Well, you may not remember, I do remember like it was yesterday, um, that Secretary of State Alexander Haig went to the podium at the White House and he said, don't worry, I'm in control here. Well, <laughs> the White House exploded. All of the there was a tumultuous flap among the president's aides and followers as to who was what and who had what authority and who had to consult with who. And I mean, in some ways, that had greater threat for the good of the country than the shooting of the president. Um, and happily, they got it sorted out. Uh, but here were people who. Uh, all thought alike in in, an enormous cause they'd been undertaking in the Reagan presidency. And yet, in a moment, they could have scattered and been at odds with one another. Think of the history of theological succession. Um, A great theologian, typically his followers, split up and defect, often on certain high points of the theology to the diminishment of others. They they follow him in this respect and not that. Uh, a s- deeply sad example is Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest uh, theologians in the history of the church. His followers uh, spread at odds with one another, some of them highlighting some parts of his theology and not others, and end up leading to a defective theology altogether, what came to be called the New England theology, which I'm quite confident Edwards would have wanted nothing to do with. Whereas the Princeton theology, I think more fully embodied, but the point is New England Calvinism and uh, the the Calvinism of the middle colonies were split because they couldn't remain united in the great influence that Edwards had been as a reformed theologian. And thus his legacy is tarnished. Yet with these men, over all of these years of ministry, over almost all of the known world, remained united in their testimony to Jesus and in their mission laid out in the New Testament. And it provided a sure foundation upon which the church has been built and stands secure in every age. Our Lord's Prayer was answered 
answered remarkably. Um, well, thoughts, re reflections on that uh, point? All right, um, we'll press on then. Um, that was how they were kept. Uh, then the petition sanctified them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is on the bottom part of page 206. Um, and uh, important point that uh, um, Dr. Ferguson makes, we tend to understand sanctification as that gradual on growing purification uh, that the Bible does speak of. But Dr. Ferguson argues that's not even the principal sense of it in the New Testament. And if you can't ask yourself, what's the proper sense in this text? You'll be misled on understanding the word because it usually refers uh, to the once for all radical and decisive act in which God reserves us for himself. Uh, so when you when you think of the um, uh, purification or sanctification of the vessels of the temple, you get some idea of it. Clearly, that, that that's not the ongoing purification of the vessel. It's a once for all setting apart that vessel for a holy use. It, it is, as it were, an objective sanctification, or in this case, the better word is probably uh, consecration. Um, well, then, uh, that's what's in view here. Uh, he's asking his heavenly father um, to protect his disciples by setting them apart for himself. And he has this nice little uh, uh, furniture uh, story illustration uh, to try and give us that idea. Um, and But then he notices the interesting paradox here. They're going to be set apart in the truth for the truth, but it's that setting apart which is the very thing that's going to put them at risk in the world because they'll be persecuted because of the truth. Uh, the truth that the Father gave to the Son to give to them that they might pass it on to others. And yet, at the same time, that word will protect them. Uh, they'll know themselves as reserved for God. And here, too, let's pause for a minute and reflect on how this prayer was answered. Jesus prayed for their sanctification in mission that they would be set apart once and for all in the truth. Thus set apart unto God, um, their safety is bound up with their being set apart in the truth. Safety would not be found by blending in, but rather by standing out. They were to stand out in radical, meaning root difference from the world. And the fact is, that's the way that they lived and served uh, throughout the time that the Lord gave them. And you hear this in their testimony over and over again. They boldly proclaim the truth that is in Jesus, Ephesians 4.21. Uh, they spoke of his word 
as the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Ephesians 1.13. They demanded of themselves and others that that truth be spoken in love, Ephesians 4.15, and that that would cause, that speaking the truth in love would cause us to grow up in every way into Christ. And so the churches they planted uh, were to be committed to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness, 1 Timothy 6.3. It was a standard whereby persons were received or uh, dismissed. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. And this proclamation uh, that the word would be grasped with a saving faith uh, that would lead to godliness, the truth which produces godliness. And those who deny the truth are deprived of godliness in 1 Timothy 6, 5. And so throughout their ministry, they were preserved in the truth. They were set apart for the truth, and they transmitted that truth to the world. The preeminence of word and spirit in their ministry uh, is manifest throughout the whole testimony of the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Thus again, uh, this portion of this remarkable prayer was remarkably answered. Um, D.A. Carson comments, If the Christian pilgrimage is inherently perilous, the safety that only God himself can provide is assured as certainly as the prayers of God's own dear son will be answered. And so he goes on to quote the beautiful lines from Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, How that uh, come what may, no fear, because he knows that God has willed his triumph through him. One little word shall fell all wickedness. Uh, And it abides not because of this worldly supports, but because of God's purpose. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, let's pause there for a moment and uh, see if you have any thoughts. Um, So we have unity and we have uh, the preservation of their lives and we have their preservation in the truth all beautifully at the heart of Jesus' prayer for them and we can see beautifully uh, answered um, the father doing as his son wanted so Dave um, yes um, so when you were talking about unity I was and I think it was Chuck Paulson in one of his books 
talked about um, the fact that the disciples um, that, that, if, that if, if they weren't protected, if, if this wasn't true, um, I don't know if he really if he pointed out that that God was preserving them, but if it wasn't true what they were talking about, there's no way they could have been they could have been united or unified because. He said, it's just humanly speaking, you get that many people together, it's going to fall apart. I'm pretty sure it was Colson, because I think he pointed to the whole Watergate thing, that, that as far as, <laughs> right. as, as they tried to keep a lid on things, it just fell apart. Everybody had a different story. And, and, and so it just, just re- reflected back that that's a wonderful testimony of God's preservation of, of, of the disciples, and how, just how remarkably... Um, consistent and cohesive their, their, their testimony was. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Steve. And, um, you know, the, that argument had been deployed before because it's, it's a powerful one that um, to have a conspiracy uh, that could not have been discovered at that time especially given the human propensity to have falling out and somebody becomes a whistleblower or something. And, uh, uh, but when Chuck compared it to Watergate, uh, I think that really um, supercharged the argument because here he pointed out, now we're talking about the most powerful government on earth with technological means uh, of investigation and, and so on. But if they couldn't deploy all those things in their own favor and keep from being found out, then how could a tiny band of people in the first century pulled off a uh, conspiracy and a a deception without being found out? It was pretty, pretty powerful. It's a good point, Steve. Other thoughts? Dave, Dave, your point about how different the disciples were as individuals is also reinforces that argument. Yes. That they, they were so uh, varied in their backgrounds and their walks of life, and yet they went out on a mission and never wavered and their story never changed. Yep. It's really something. Yep. Very powerful. Very powerful. All right. Well, let, let, let's uh, make our last leg here. Um, the um, So, uh, Jesus wants the disciples to be preserved into the, in the truth. Um, and uh, then on page uh, 208, Dr. Ferguson makes this comment. Jesus isn't praying to be overheard in the sense of draw attention to himself. He wants to be heard by his Father who is in heaven. But nevertheless, he speaks to the Father on this occasion. And he does want his disciples to hear what he's saying and understand something very important. 
He says he wants his disciples to know the deepest, his deepest desires for them. The things, in verse 13, the things, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is going to be a tremendously difficult uh, mission. This is going to be a mission where there's going to be physical suffering. Uh, there'll be psychological suffering, spiritual suffering. Um, you think of the way uh, the Apostle Paul catalogs the things he went through, shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments and so on. And yet Jesus is saying, he is praying that in all of this, my goal is that they would have my joy fulfilled in them, that they would take pleasure in my service. And I think it's also worth here pausing for a minute and to reflect upon how our Lord's prayer in this respect was answered, because it is manifestly. Um, Jesus prayed for the apostles' joy in all that lay ahead. Um, it would be a world of trouble, but in their mission they were to know joy. What's the outcome of that prayer? Well, first note just a curious statistical reality. In the apostolic writings, the ESV translators use variations of the words, word joy 72 times over 62 verses throughout the epistles. They use various words for sorrow and grief 18 times over 13 verses. The proportion is all out of whack. It's four times more with respect to joy. And it gives you some idea of the characterization of their own sensibilities as they were trying to communicate to the churches that even in this world of woe, the dominant theme is joy. That joy derived from the sight of God's redemptive plan, perfectly accomplished in the work of Christ upon the cross, being spread throughout the world. Um, uh, Johnston commenting on this, he said, uh, it has its roots in the pain of Calvary, but will blossom in the never-ending pleasures of heaven. What a beautiful way to think about the advance of the gospel. Uh, rooted in the pain of Calvary, but that blossoming all over the world. And finally, heavenward in the garden, the new garden in never-ending pleasure. And um, you see that in all of the writings. Uh, the Apostle Paul, Romans 5.20, Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and so on. Or Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.20, you are our glory and joy 
he says to those believers. That's what ministry brought to him, that he had a relationship with people, that it was glory and joy for him. James in 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Peter, 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. John, in his epistles, 1-4, the first, 1-4, we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. You see, he is writing the word to them and he has said to them already how what pleasure he takes it when he finds his children are walking in the faith. And so that even he's and he's participating in this great work of preserving the truth, he says, I'm doing it because of the joy that it's going to bring me to see you love and serve Christ. And two John one four, I rejoice to find some well, that's the point I just referred to. I I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as they were commanded by the Father. This referring to uh, a colloquial way of referring to church members. And in 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And uh, then the great benediction in Jude at at 1, 24 Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forevermore. To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So our Lord's prayer uh, was manifestly answered by the Father in the ministry of the apostles, bathed in joy, for the purpose of joy, and finally, uh, being engulfed in joy in in the presence of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, Dr. Ferguson concludes uh, by noting that Jesus' ministry uh, didn't end in the upper room, that right now he's on the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people, and we have some sense of what that intercession is like. And he mentions that the older writers used to call John 17 a transcript of his present intercession for the whole church. That's a beautiful image to think of what we've been reading and studying thus far is a manifestation of what Jesus is now engaged with uh, on our behalf. Well, thoughts? reflections, questions, comments, objections, concerns, anything you'd like to to raise. I see the screen flashing, but I don't see anybody. It's it's me. It's me. Oh, there you go. I, I had a question back on Page 201. All right. And, um, it's the next to the last paragraph, but he says, at this point, Jesus is praying for his immediate disciples only. Yes. But then the rest of the Testament, 
I was thinking of a previous chapter when, when we talked about it being some uh, scripture that was specifically for that group only. Yes. But the difference here is that other places in the New Testament make it clear that that every disciple has been given his son by the Father. And I, I thought that was a, to me, that because of our previous discussion, that stood out to me as an example of how different portions of Scripture will teach the thing that we're thinking of Mass. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a great point to raise, Bonnie. Um, just because a particular text is clearly particularly addressed to a limited group in some way or another. That doesn't mean it can't have any further implications. It just means we have to take it strictly that way in that instance. But if we see it being, in fact, for them even, just exemplary in some way of a broader way in which God is treating his people, then yes, absolutely. And that that was a good point that I think Dr. Ferguson helped us to see there, that this is peculiarly addressed to the disciples, but not addressed to them as disciples in this respect, because it belongs to all. That's a great point to raise, Bonnie. Other thoughts? All right, well, our time is coming to close. We have but one chapter left. I'm sad to see it draw to a close, but um, it'll be a very interesting chapter, I'm sure. I will say that the last part of this prayer, uh, I think, um, has been uh, sorely misused in the history of the church. So we'll have some interesting discussion, I think, about it. Deb, are you trying to get my attention? Sorry, it took me a few minutes to find the, the hand raising. Yes. But um, while, when I was reading through this chapter, I was I thought back to one of the earlier chapters, and you brought out a point in that chapter about how the real pattern of father and children is our Heavenly Father and His relationship to Christ and to us, and that uh, that human fathers are simply created to reflect that image. Yes. And I thought of how when our children are mostly grown and we're sending them off to college and out into the world, we often pray in a way similarly how Jesus prayed for his disciples in this prayer because we we say, Oh Father, you you entrusted these children to our care for just a short time and we have cared for them and nurtured them and protected them as best we could and now we're entrusting them back to your care. Not that they haven't always been in his care, but in a in a new way, they're, we're completely giving them to him because we know we can't. Uh, I, I guess I'm not articulating. No, no, you are. You you are. It's a lovely thought. 
absolutely lovely thought. I do think you're entirely right that uh, there are the, the sensibilities that Christ has for the disciples um, partake in that, that he's been their caretaker, but that now he's sending them off. And very easily you could find yourself praying in, uh, at least in, in, in uh, a general degree, like that for your own children. It petitions just such as these. I, I think that's a beautiful thought. Yes, and I said that we are petitioning him to keep them and preserve them in the faith and the faithful. And um, we, we, with our longer lives, we can look back on our lives and see how gar- God guarded and guided us through dangers of which we were, may have been completely unaware at the time. And we can see how our own children going into the world are, in many ways, unaware of the dangers around <laughs> Right, right. Nice point. Thanks for bringing that up, Deb. I think that's a wonderful way to think about the prayer. Anyone else? Well, lovely being with you all this evening and uh, have a good rest of the week. I I won't be at uh, New Hope on Sunday because a a church out to the west of us in Gainesville um, needed someone to preach next Sunday. So I'll be out there, but I I hope to be uh, back for the hymn sing um, on Sunday evening. But have a lovely Lord's Day and rest of the week. And thank you so much for being here tonight and take care. Let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, grant us that the lessons from this second part of Christ's prayer, uh, we would take to heart, that we would find it just marvelous that the apostles were faithful to their calling and that their work provides the foundation for the church. We thank you that you preserved their lives, that you preserved them in unity, that their testimony is one. And we thank you that you did uh, sanctify them in the truth and that that truth is now ours because they were set apart unto the truth. And we thank you that uh, that truth and ministry brought them great joy and that it was their purpose to see that joy in those uh, that they ministered to. And we thank you that that prayer was realized as well and we pray that those prayers having been on Christ's lips once would continue to be on his lips on our behalf as that seems to be the part of the point of this prayer and that we would take great encouragement uh, in the thought that this is what our Lord seeks for us and we ask all for his glory and for our good. Amen.